Happy Monday. How's it going? Doing well. <laughs> Doing well. Uh, yeah. I mean, awesome. you know, fresh, fresh out of the holiday weekend. So awesome. Yeah. You, you uh, over a, a tryptophan headache or, or whatever you uh, had over Thanksgiving? <laughs> yeah. I was in uh, LA visiting family and they convinced me not to take the red eye last night. So I'm actually feeling like pretty well rested. So, oh, good. Uh, yeah. Congratulations. Awesome. Uh, and if, if you notice Matt's not speaking right now, he's dealing with some technical issues. Uh, okay. So he will uh, fix that uh, live on air because that's what we do best. <laughs> Debug in production. Um, so for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Yeah. So thanks so much. For, thanks so much for having me on the show, Joe. Um, yep. I'm Sarah Nagy. Um, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Seek AI. Um, we basically do uh, natural language querying for um, all sorts of structured data, especially kind of large, complicated um, data sets in a data warehouse. Interesting. Um, we'll get into that in gory detail in a bit. But I think uh, before we dive into the topic and um, and derail it, uh, before the show, we were talking about the OpenAI uh, debacle. And I, and I think I'm interested in your thoughts on, on um, what happened. That happened last week. It seems like it was a year ago, um, but it was... It's fairly recent. Um, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I know. I mean, it just seems like almost old news at this point to to be talking about it, but it really was like, you know, only a few days ago, it really kind of sort of resolved. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, I'm the CEO of a, a dot AI company. So um, I think probably a lot of other founders in this space were you know, it, it probably took up a lot of their time. Like I know it took up a lot of my time. Um, yeah, I think, you know, you kind of asked me before we started recording, like whose side was I on, you know, Sam mm. or the board. And, you know, I was just kind of saying like, it's not, um, it's almost like the situation I feel not necessarily the people. Yeah, it was an interesting situation. Well, I mean, it had the chance of, of completely reshaping uh, the AI landscape in a matter of days in quite a few structural ways. And I mean, I think it, I know that I was um, I was driving through the middle of nowhere in Idaho and just binging Twitter trying to figure because it seemed like every second it was a different story. Literally every second something else was happening. So I'm sure, it'll make a great uh, Netflix uh, series at some point. But uh, it was <laughs> like... It was fascinating. So, yeah, um, and there's all sorts of you know tinfoil hat theories, and and it's like maybe they're maybe it's not tinfoil hat. Who knows? But you know, just kind of listening to other people's reactions. Like uh, I've heard heard people tell me, you know, they have like a theory that what if this was a publicity stunt? I mean, it generated great publicity uh it got the word out about q star um so you know <laughs> yeah i mean I was, I was kind of joking with you about this too i thought that it, it seemed like it was a um it, it seemed like a very professional wrestling kind of move yeah <laughs> or just you know uh minus uh slamming each other over the um, head with chairs and stuff but it was a uh, um it yeah it almost seemed like too too weird because you're back to square one, but I don't know. I, I don't, it seemed like it would seem like a lot of effort in order to make a, a, a PR announcement. So, <laughs> but who knows? I, I just chalk it up to maybe the world's just that crazy sometimes, you know? Um, so, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think the press um, does a really good job uh, just finding out about these stories when they're just so early. It's like, you know, if the press just hadn't been involved, it's like none of us would have been the wiser necessarily. It could have all just, you know, un unfolded over that course of like five or six days. And we could, you know, if, if the press hadn't found out about it, things would have just seemed normal. So I think mm -hmm. that's also kind of interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, we'll see what happens and see what QSTAR is, if it even exists or not. Um, so I, we don't know. Um, looks like Matt wants to uh, join. Are you good, Matt? I Hopefully I'm good now. Okay. Nice to have you back. We're just talking conspiracy theories and uh, Netflix specials and stuff. So um, it's fine. You didn't miss anything. 
looks very pensive. Um, cool. <laughs> so on that note, um, yeah, great to see everybody in the audience there. Looks like we have quite a few people showing up. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll jump right into it. Uh, Seek AI, um, generative AI, automating analytics, all this stuff. Tell us about this. Why you solve this problem? Yeah. So you know, my background actually is data science. Um, like that's pretty much all I really know, you know, and I was always kind of on the research side. Um, so, I mean, I actually started out, um, as an astrophysics researcher, I was oh. working with a lot of data from the Hubble space telescope actually at UCLA and Caltech. Yeah. And I kind of decided to, you know, I actually started out as a quantitative analyst at a trading firm, um, because, uh, I don't know. It's actually a more typical career path than you might think for people yeah. coming from that background. And then I kind of got into data science. Um, you know, this was like around the time that machine learning actually kind of entered, you know, our vocabulary. I think like 20, you know, 14, 2015. Yep. Um, you Before know, it so was AI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely like AI was not you know, that meant something totally different, I think, back then. That was almost like, I don't know, almost like not necessarily even neural nets, just more crazier AI stuff. Like, I forget the name of that company, but there, there's actually a company that was trying to replicate, like, the entire human brain in this, like, giant supercomputer, I think, in somewhere in Europe. Like, that. that's sort of what I thought of back then when I thought AI, you know. So yeah, mm. you're totally right. Yeah, so it's a, it's a pretty typical career path. And in fact, if Matt's audio works, uh, y'all are physicists. So um, uh, did you go? To, you didn't go to Caltech, did you? Or you went to UC Santa Barbara, I think, Matt? I, I did. So yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, awesome. We'll just we'll let Matt do his thing for a bit. Um, that's pretty cool. So then, um, so astrophysics, quant. And then what happened? Yeah, so, you know, because of all these changes and data science was such this exciting career path, I ended up actually kind of transitioning more to being a data scientist. Um, you know, what really drove me was, you know, again, kind of this buzzword, like so-called big data. Um, I really wanted to be doing things like, you know, like towards the end of my career, I was doing um, kind of this uh, not super well-known, kind of niche, um, but it, it, it was called alternative data research. Um, so towards the end of my career, I was at Citadel, for example, mm. um, basically working with like thousands, or I had access to thousands of just like really interesting, unusual kind of data sets that were big data sets, often very messy. Um, and my role was kind of to be you know, discovering um, inefficiencies, basically, or predictive power in these data sets, kind of like uncovering the value so that uh, ideally we would be able to make trades and, you know, make a lot of money um, off of this research. Interesting. Yeah, that's a whole world. I, I was talking to um, somebody a couple months ago about alternative data sets, and it, it was uh, mm -hmm. it just that's a vast, vast universe. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you could go down that rabbit hole. Really fascinating stuff, though, right? So. Yeah, like I think, you know, the way that maybe people who aren't in finance might have heard of it is uh, I, I know like, you know, there's there used to be like articles coming out, say like the Wall Street Journal on like, oh, this hedge fund hires a bunch of people to count cars in parking lots looking at satellite mm -hmm. data and predict, you know, sales of these brick and mortar. You know, like I was literally that person. <laughs> you were in a parking lot counting cars? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was looking at a parking lot. <laughs> right. Sort of looking like I was coding stuff that would look at parking lot. Got it. That's super cool. That's super cool. And then um, kind of fast forward to today and structured data sets, uh, generative AI, automating analytics. Like, tell us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, I started Seek to solve a problem that I just had pretty much everywhere, you know. When I was a quant, when I was a data scientist, I was at a couple of B2B SaaS startups. Um, and I just kind of kept feeling like, you know, the reason I got into this field, you know, having been a researcher 
was I thought I would be doing, you know, continuing to do research and really like using my brain to find these insights that could generate revenue for the company. Like that's really what motivated me. And instead, you know, I just kind of kept feeling almost more like a cost center or just almost like a gatekeeper for the data. Like, you know, to give you an example, um, a fundamental investor might uh, come up to me and be like, hey, Sarah, you know, I want to make this trade. Uh, you know, like say I want to, I don't know, go long McDonald's, short Chick-fil-A, whatever, um, like a pairs trade. Hey, you know, can you just uh, pull uh, the market share that you're seeing in the credit card data just for the last three months broken down by day? And at the time we didn't have generative AI, you know, but we had Siri and mm -hmm. my name even sounds a little like Siri, you know, Sarah. And I was just like, you know, I just feel like the human Siri right now. Like I'm just kind of executing these tasks and I, I don't really have a say in what I'm doing, but it's just, you know, the reason for that was just, there was no other option. Like I was the only one that knew the data, the tools weren't great that these, these people could use. So it's just the whole time it seemed really inefficient. So that was basically the problem that, you know, I ended up solving with Seek. Right. But, but why not just do self-service analytics? Why, why not just have people do uh, <laughs> get a data set and just munch data themselves? I mean, we tried. <laughs> um, yeah. That was a softball question, by the way. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, it, obviously, that's what the dream of self-serve analytics is, is like, that's the problem. Theoretically, it's supposed to solve. But I'll just give you another example from the finance world. Um, you know, we would receive uh, feeds of data and say something was wrong with a current feed. It didn't necessarily even have to be that the data was not delivered properly or whatever. It could just be the data changed in some way. That's the sort of thing that self-serve tools really aren't great at picking up on. And so, you know, something that would happen to me sometimes was like, you know, sometimes a investor would see a big spike in some sort of data set and um, just kind of almost be ready to make a trade on it. And I have to look mm -hmm. at it and be like, no, 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 you don't want to trade on that. Oh. It's like the stakes are hot, like <laughs> for that kind of thing. Like, you know, Citadel or whatever hedge fund, you know, whatever shop is doing this kind of work, like these are not easy places to work. Like you you don't have the margin to make that kind of mistakes. <laughs> Dang. Okay. So yeah, and I, I've seen this too. I think the, the self-service analytics has sort of been the holy grail of of the BI industry for since as long as I've been in the industry, which is a couple decades now. So you know, I don't think we've ever gotten there. Maybe some companies have to some extent, but it feels like it's, it feels like a mirage in some ways where it's always just over the horizon. We're, we're just about to get there and you keep walking. And of course it keeps moving and that's where it is. <laughs> so, and it's, um, and you're absolutely right too. The data sets themselves have a sort of, uh, uh I think Matt and I describe it as uh, entropy, right? Uh, data is good one day, then a sort of decays over time and that's just the natural order of how it goes so yeah we see that all the time um exactly that just you know as it's really like i heard a great quote um something along the lines of like a really great data team will be doing work and building data products that reflect kind of the greatest needs of the business as a whole so that's something we find with our customers as the customer's actual, you know, we, we work with businesses and as those businesses priorities change, it's interesting because we'll see that reflected in how the data is changing. Hmm. Interesting. You mentioned the term data products. I'm always interested what people, um, what it means to, to people. Uh, what, what does a data product mean to you? Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. <laughs> so um, I definitely think that product, you know, it implies product manager as well. Uh, you know, like at Seek, for example, like we have a head of product. Um, something I've reflected on is like, I never really had a head of product when I was a data scientist. Mm. There was no product manager that I would ever be working with. 
And I've actually spoken with other, you know, data analysts or data scientists that have told me some of the more innovative ones do have some sort of like project management. Um, and I think that's right because just from my experience as a CEO working with our head of engineering, something we discovered, and this doesn't have anything to do with data, but it's more, you know, I'm, I'm just like, you know, reading stuff all day. People are like pushing me information. I'm talking to customers. So I have a bunch of just stuff going on in my head where, you know, there's like tons, like dozens of potential features that we could be building. And uh, something I've learned is like, it's really kind of hard to go to the head of engineering and be like, hey, you know, these are like the 36 uh, feature requests that I have today, you know, like, maybe let's like break the priorities. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, you wouldn't have a head of engineering out if you kept doing that. <laughs> a person would leave. <laughs> a funny side note on that, too. I was talking to my, uh, I, um, uh, one of my relatives, uh, he was, um, he was early on at Nikolai, the uh, electric car company that um, became very infamous. And he said Trevor Milton, the CEO, would do exactly that. The uh, the, the guy who's I think going to jail now. Um, he would he would <laughs> he would show up in the office. That's why. And, no, he would. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, he would he would just have product requests after product requests and, and to engineering and say, oh yeah, we're going to be launching this. And people are like, we have no idea what you're talking about. That's nothing being launched. We have no idea. Um, right. But, uh, but it seemed like he would just, you know, do exactly what you said every day. It was like a bajillion different requests coming in and, um, you know, making cars roll downhill and when they're, part, when they're in neutral gear and stuff. So it's, uh, this is, this is, these are the kind of things that happen. Not saying that that's going to happen, um, but it's something you want to keep in check. I'm giving a, a pretty well, colorful yeah. story. Yeah. <laughs> so. And that's like such a good point too, about like, Hey, you know, maybe we should just prioritize not having the car roll downhill. Maybe like get to these other things later. <laughs> but it makes a pretty cool video. So <laughs> <laughs> again, you know, maybe publicity stunt gone mm -hmm. bad. Yeah, these are all tied together somehow. Um, so um, that's really interesting. We'll get to the back to generative AI stuff in a bit. But I, I'm, I'm very curious since you're you're talking about being a CEO of a um, of an AI company. What's that like? Like, how did you prepare for your role as, as a CEO? I mean, it's definitely been a pretty wild journey for me because, you know, like I was telling you, like I came almost a hundred percent from a research background. Yeah. Um, like I led, you know, teams, but they were all teams of data scientists doing more or less the same thing. So um, I think, you know, going from almost a researcher to a CEO was uh, really, you know, I don't even know what the right word is, like disorienting, especially mm -hmm. at first, because all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I have to manage um, a really, really diverse group of executive team members that all know way more than I do about everything. So um, that was really, uh, you know, yeah, I, I think disorienting is a good word, but at the same time, you know, I, I love it now that I've kind of adapted. Um, but uh, but yeah, I would say, you know, if anyone in the audience is thinking about that sort of thing, like I would say, you know, that's that's one of my interesting experiences. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you phrase that interesting experiences. Um, have you had a, uh, any mentors or, or other CEOs you, you can chat with? I, 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 I've done the role myself and I feel like it's it can be a very lonely role at times. I think in your situation, having, um, I think, exposure and a deep knowledge of the problem space certainly helps because you kind of know, um, you know, where you uh, need to go. Um, but it's, mm -hmm. I can't say it's the easiest job in the world. Um, so. I mean, definitely not. Um, yeah. And I think coming from this kind of background, I mean, it does have a lot of strengths. Uh, I do think, and to, to answer your question too, um, yeah, I have uh, a ton of really great, you know, advisors and mentors. Um, I mean, even some of Seek's investors are, you know, um, have been really helpful to me. Um, Bob Muglia, Tristan Handy, those oh, nice. are a couple leaders that, um, you know, invested in Seek and have given me some really great advice. So I'm definitely not 
I, I definitely think you can't just be winging this on your own, especially if you have almost no experience. Like you have to be learning from the best for sure. Yeah. Those are great mentors, by the way. Bob's Bob's yeah. awesome. Uh, Tristan's awesome. Tristan's going to be on the show actually next week. So, um, Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, good group. But yeah, I, I, yeah, you got the dream team right there. It's perfect. So, um, and, and kind of bring it back to the problem space that you're working in too. It's interesting. Cause I think those two have, I think very deep rooted knowledge in the problems that they've solved, um, you know, in their own respective uh, careers as well as um, the companies they invest in and um, you know, structured data being one of them, right? So we can, we can jump into that now. Um, you know, I, I've, I've worked on machine learning problems with structured data in the past. I can't say it's the easiest data sets to work with. Uh, I think they're actually quite challenging for a number of reasons. Um, why did you pick this one? Why not, why not just do generative AI on images or video or something? something simple like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a really good question. You know, um, sometimes I see other companies like, you know, getting into seek space and I'm just like, you know, you probably don't want to be getting into this space right now because you probably don't understand how hard of a problem it is. Like if you understand how hard of a problem it is and you're willing to take on that specific challenge, um, that's great, but most people don't. Um, a lot of people went into generative AI because they saw it as a gold rush. Yep. And structured data is not a gold rush type of application. No, it's like a copper mine at best, um, like or a coal mine. It sucks. <laughs> like so. Yeah. Well, like one of my favorite movies actually is There Will Be Blood. Um, I like. It's like, it definitely feels like that, you know, in the beginning, like you just, you know, you don't know like where, like you've just got to keep like struggling, like doing all this work to, you know, it's hard work, like figuring out like all these different, it's just challenge after challenge after challenge. Cause to your point, it's like even self-serve analytics without the generative AI isn't even solved. Yep. So if this is a massive problem to solve. So it does, it's, it's one of those spaces where it just feels like you're, you know, you're pushing and you're pushing and you're pushing and you're not going to get this like dopamine hit, you know, every day of like, um, the only real like dopamine hit you'll get is, oh, we solved this problem. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of other problems that you have to solve. But for me, I think the reason I kept at it just, you know, day after day now for almost going on two years is because it's like, it's all I know, you know, my whole background is working with structured data. Mm -hmm. um, it's a problem I really want to solve. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty much, pretty much it. If I didn't have that, um, you know, if it, it would have been maybe kind of easy to say like, oh, let's, you know, let's pivot into like, you know, writing poetry for dogs. I'm sure that would be like a really great business. So. <laughs> Where's my dog? I'm trying to find her. It, it might actually be these days. I mean, who knows? People spend a lot of money on their dogs. Just walk around. I was about that. to say, you might have actually figured out your, uh, <laughs> you know, your, what you're working on is great, Sarah. But this next one, I, I think that that's, that's really where you should be. Um, my dog agrees. Um, okay, so structured data. What? Why is it hard? What, what's what To you, what is the most difficult problem uh, with structured data? So I think the core of what makes it a hard problem is you need to get the answer right. Whereas, um, you know, with the, you know, the, the like poetry example or whatever, um, it, and it could even be something valuable to business, like copy generation. Yep. Um, that's the sort of thing where I think you have a little bit of a margin for error because uh, it's more of like a divergence test, which I, I think it's kind of interesting. I haven't necessarily heard anyone make this analogy before, but um, have you guys heard of the divergence test? I have not. I will Google it, this now. Yeah. And you can tell us what <laughs> it is too. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's actually a way people came up with to measure human intelligence. Um, a lot of people, you know, don't like IQ. They just think it's, it's just not, it doesn't capture the full spectrum of human intelligence. So some people came up with this thing called the divergence test, which more measures human creativity. So for example, um, you know, I could say like right now, give me five ways you would use, um, five ways you would pick a lock if you only had access to like some silverware. I don't know, I'm just making that up. <laughs> 
full of great examples. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I got that from, but it's good. It's good. You go with it. Um, so, so you have that example, and then and then what? So the point is, I think if you're uh, really creative, you're going to be like, oh, okay, well, you know, first I'll like, you know, try to use like a prong of like a fork or whatever, you know, yeah. then I'll try to do this, this, this. And I think uh, the people that can just name five really creative ideas of how they would actually do this um, are, you know, doing well on this divergence test versus people that just might get stuck and, you know, not think of anything. So how does that translate to AI? Something I think is really interesting is AI seems pretty good. Uh, when I say AI, I mean like GPT-4, for example. It's really good actually at the divergence test. Like if I ask that question to GPT-4, it would just give me five, five things in, mm -hmm. in a matter of seconds. So, um, you know, how, how come this doesn't work for querying structured data? It's because there's only really one right answer. Um, maybe there, maybe there's a few kind of slightly different ways of giving the answer, but kind of like the core, like the truth of the answer, it needs, it really needs to sort of, it really becomes binary at the end of the day. Yeah. And it, this is just not the kind of thing that GPT-4 is good at. Correct. And, and to like use an analogy with the human brain, it's like GPT-4 is sort of missing the executive functions that we have. So all of us are capable of like confabulating, just making things up, but our executive functions kind of keep us from doing that and say, no, 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 you, you were asked a specific question. You need to make sure you're not making up nonsense. Or maybe another analogy is in, the ma in math or even in physics. If you're writing a proof, like you work through a creative process, but then you have to go back and check it carefully. And it seems like large language models can't really do that part either right now. Like they can't generate a few ideas and then say, oh, I missed a step here or I screwed up here. So this is not a correct proof. And same thing with structured data, like to get to that right answer, even by a creative path, there's a lot of like checking to make sure that things are correct and that you're not hallucinating. Well, text to SQL is especially finicky. Um, it was funny because uh, I think a couple of weeks ago I, um, I was doing a, a show with um, uh, one of the vendors I work with, um, you know, promotion and stuff, and they they had unveiled some AI um, kind of you can make data pipelines with AI, and I kind of made a quip that I think is actually pretty accurate. Where I was like, okay, so now you're gonna have to do uh, uh, prompt reviews with your engineering team. So I was like, but how would you ever test this? Right? It's not a unit test where it has a, a discrete output every single time. Mm -hmm. It's not a function. It's literally not a function. You can get any any sort of output. It might subtly be different, um, but you know. And I've seen this in my own uh, research with the Texas SQL, uh, with the book I'm writing right now. It's like it's um, depending on the way you phrase the question, it's it's going to come up with a different, maybe a slightly different um, SQL output. And that's just how it is, and that will have different results inherently because that's how that works. And so you know, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. And structured data, like you say, it's hard anyway. I mean, BI is hard. I mean, most companies are struggling with that. Um, and now, you know, when I get my talks on data modeling, um, you know, around the world, the question I always ask the audience, I've asked thousands and thousands of people at this point is, you know, who in the audience is willing to bet your your job on putting a large language model on top of your existing data set today? Sight unseen. Nobody raises their hand, except one friend of mine who is doing that at her job. But, you know, but the, the point is, is like, you know, I think when you when you put people in a position like that, you know, when your money's on the line, your job's on the line, you're going to do it? Maybe. So, so I think people realize it's these, these structured data sets, they're, they're hard. They're really hard. So. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, there are, sometimes I see people like, you know, showing a demo and claiming like, oh, you know, this is like, this this is this has perfect accuracy. I've literally seen people say this has perfect near perfect accuracy, wow. and it's just that's just not realistic. Um, like part of our challenge was how do we because there are a number of things that we can do today that can add a lot of value. Um, you know, like one you know one example is. Um, you were mentioning, you know, data can change over time, depending on the business's priorities. Um, you know, like just, just focusing initially on one data set and getting that right 
you're a lot more likely to hit those kind of levels of accuracy um, than if you just kind of start out really broad. Um, but anyway, those are all kind of things that we're researching. But I think a, a big thing that we've realized is you've got to have a human in the loop. Um, you need guardrails. And, and it kind of goes back to the whole philosophical crux of like the open AI chaos. Um, mm. In my opinion, it all boiled down to a philosophical question. AI safety versus revenue. And because their board was structured the way it was, it's like these weren't bad people. These were just people that were behaving according to incentives uh, that were created by this structure that didn't work. So one realization I had was, um, why does revenue have to be fighting with AI safety? You know, if customers want safe AI, then that could be something you can just charge the customer for. So, um, you know, with Seek, it's like, it's like exactly what you said, you know, nobody's gonna just put GPT-4 on top of their giant data warehouse because it's just what's going to happen. Like it's going to break on your very first question. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I should point out too. I mean, the in analytics, you're you're incentivized to give correct answers, uh, or right. I would say believable answers is another maybe another way of framing this. That's how Bill Inman describes it. He because uh, the correct some people's data is just not correct. It's tangentially or directionally correct, but it's uh, it's not a. Um, it's not 100% correct, but that's the reality of it, right? But it, I think believable is maybe another way of describing it. But then, you know, as you point out, though, with, with GPT, it, it, it's 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 insanely good at giving believable answers. Like, that's literally what it's trained to do. And so I think that the, the difference now is if you're going to query, uh, if like you say, if you put GPT-4 in your data set and you query it, it it's going to come up with a very convincing answer. If you didn't understand the underlying data, you would totally believe that it's right. So... Yeah. And how often is that going to happen? You know, it depends on um, essentially how much training data you have. But assuming that you have a good amount of training data, you know, when, you know, I mean, we have seen it get up to near perfect accuracy ourselves on data sets where there's a lot of training data, but we're not going to just go out and say it's, it's near perfect accuracy. Like you have mm -hmm. to, you have to work your way up to that. Um, and even then, um, Something that, you know, we do is have a human in the loop um, workflow. You know, that's what that kind of means here is um, I, it's just what I would have wanted as a data scientist, like, you know, being able to take a look at what 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 is the code that the AI is writing and being able to supervise it. I, I'm trying not to shill here. I'm just, oh, you know, it's just what we have. So <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I mean, you're working on interesting enough stuff where I would say it it, it doesn't cross the line of shilling because um, it, it's just you're one of the only people really doing it, I would say, and have been doing it for a while. So, um, so we've got some audience questions here if you want to take some of these. Um, let's start with uh, Kimberly's question. Um, can you share how Seek utilizes behavior science, uh, if it does, to determine subconscious drivers for consumer preference? Mm -hmm. I think this is a really interesting question because we do do some analysis of um, more just uh, behavior of users of Seek itself. So we have looked actually at user behavior to try to understand, you know, how do people actually write SQL and also trying to measure, you know, how, how much time can Seek save. Um, so I, I have some experience with this, I guess, if it's more for so subconscious drivers and consumer preference, I mean, I think that, I mean, we do work with MarTech companies or, or marketing departments. And so we've seen similar things where it's like come up with, you know, drivers of, um, you know, what are the top five kind of components of a, that define a customer and their, their willingness to buy a certain product. Um, I would say on the more low tech side and actually like sometimes when it comes to analytics, the low tech works well because you have a human coming up with their own hypotheses and they're using analytics to 
you know, either either look at the data and find out if it confirms or refutes the hypothesis. Uh, or if they're using data incorrectly, unfortunately, what we also see is they'll just try to fit the data to, to their hypothesis. Hmm. Um, but it, <laughs> that never but happens. Try, <laughs> <Just kidding>. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I would say in that in that case, I think analytics would work really well here because ideally you'd have a human coming up with their hypotheses of oh, what subconscious drivers are driving you know this purchase behavior. Then you can just go into your analytics and you know yeah make a data driven um, conclusion. Cool. Anybody respond? Yeah, that's a great question. I know um, some research came out. Uh, I think it was over the weekend or last week about knowledge graphs. Um, so I can also talk about Seek's experience with knowledge graphs. I mean, like I mentioned, you know, Tristan's oh, an investor. Um, yeah, and we actually, you know, integrate with DBT, which I would consider the DBT DAG to be kind of an example of a knowledge graph. Um, and it's great. Knowledge graphs are absolutely so powerful. Like this research was proving that a knowledge graph does help large language models be more accurate. So that would make them kind of less divergent. Um, so absolutely, knowledge graphs, it goes hand in hand. It's like a perfect fit with LLMs. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge is, you know, like a lot of companies have dozens of thousands of tables, hundreds of thousands of tables. You know, how are you gonna build a knowledge graph for, for all of that? It is time intensive work. Like at Seek, we use the DBT semantic layer. Like, that took, you know, that took a lot of work for us to build. Um, so I, I personally have firsthand experience how hard it is building a knowledge graph. So I think the challenge is just all the work that goes into it. But as long as that data is kind of just timeless, like it's not going to change, it probably makes it worth the investment. And then it will help the LLMs a lot. That's interesting. And the, the interview I did with uh, Bob Muglia uh, a few months ago, he was... I'm not sure if you talked to him about this, but he's he's very hot on knowledge graphs right now. I think it's I think it literally is the only thing in his mind because he, he's he's saying that you know kind of have to think past relational, right? And so I think this is uh it's his crusade, at least he said for the fall, hopefully the winter too. Um, but yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, and then people like Juan Cicada, for example, and John O'Gorman too. I mean, who made the question? I mean, they're they're um you know definitely uh you know very hot on knowledge graphs as well. And it's, I think it's it's a very promising space. I mean, the research I was at the uh, um, Juan Cicada's talk in uh, London a couple months ago at the Alan Turing Institute, and he um, was doing some research on uh, knowledge graphs with large language models in Texas SQL. And yeah, sure enough, helps solve the hallucination problem. Um, so I think uh, more work's going to be done there. But yeah, the results are promising and uh, definitely sort of the yin to the yang. I think there's even a paper that had a yin and yang um, symbol of where knowledge graphs and um, large language models fit. Large language models being very good at generalizing, but don't have any context and knowledge graphs having the context, but terrible at generalizing. And so we'll see where this goes. I actually, I saw some interesting uh, research too on um, uh, graph embeddings as well, which I thought was kind of an interesting take. So, mm -hmm. yeah. We'll see. Yeah, we, we've looked into that a little bit as well. Um, Cause I mean, yeah, these are graph, uh, graph embeddings, um, you know, it's graph or even graph neural networks. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it just, because it has the graph structure, yeah. Uh, you know, trying to figure out how, how can that be utilized to help with these knowledge graphs? Um, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I see here. Um, Kristen has a question here. Uh, he was having this debate on Friday with a client. What is a good amount of training data? I'm, I'm imagining for structured data sets. Um, I'm guessing these are row counts, 10,000, 10,000. So I don't think there's a specific number. Uh, that's just the magic number. It's not like 42. Um, <laughs> Sadly. I, I think, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it just depends on, on this, the data, uh, the size of the data, um, the, the complexity of the data, you know, how many columns are there? Um, are the columns well labeled? Do you have a knowledge graph? 
uh, and also how much business knowledge um, is required. So mm. it, it, it's something we've actually done a lot of research on, but the more the better. I mean, if you have 10,000 uh, training data points, you like, you know, try to see if there's a way to use all 10,000, I would say. Yep. Yeah, the more the better. I mean, I, I can definitely say that. So it, it, mm. as long as it's good data. That's the crux. Uh, we have, <laughs> like we found that we have had examples where we've collected training data um, from, you know, one of our customers and uh, it actually did make the performance worse um, because it, it's not even that it was just low quality or bad data. It's, it's more that it wasn't relevant to, mm. you know, the questions getting asked, which is kind of interesting. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely this is why it's a hard space. There's so many just complexities um, around this, and also so much business knowledge that yep. you know. But which again, the knowledge graphs will will definitely help solve. So I hope so. I mean, I, I my experience is I, I worked at I think we are among the first, if not the first, automated machine learning startup. This is back in 2011, 2012, mm -hmm. um, and. The whole notion was give us a data set, we'll give you predictions on it, right? Classifications or some sort of an out regression output. Every data set was gnarly. The domain expertise you point out, it's, it's I mean, you kind of have to go back to stakeholders. So what does this column mean exactly? And is this column useful? And then, you know, the, the, the crux of it is, as you point out, the, in fact, the, the more features you add in, um, the worse your data could be because you're just introducing a bunch of noise that probably doesn't need to be there in the first place, right? And so, um, but the generative AI piece, it, it's obviously a different approach, right? And, and um, those types of um, problems. Um, I, I guess when, when you're looking at generative AI with, with structured data sets, um, wh what are some of the, the challenges with that? I think we talked about, about why structured data is hard, but maybe not um, specifically of the context of LLMs. Hmm. Yeah, like what are some of the challenges of LLMs? Well, to start, um, you know, I think someday maybe there will be a GPT, whatever, five, six, seven, that has a very large context window, large enough to fit everything, like the entire corpus of the data, the, you know, all your unstructured data too. You know, if you can just dump everything into this prompt um, and the model is super smart, um, you should be able to just, you know, like, Get, get correct answers back. Um, is that coming anytime soon? No. <laughs> it's actually GPT-42 when it comes out, so. Yeah, exactly. G that's that's the magic number, GPT-42. That's, yeah. Um, no, but I think uh, actually Matt made a really good point about how do humans query data? Um, mm. And what, what you described, that's exactly what I used to do when I was a data scientist. I would do a bunch of little experiments that I would just come up with kind of on the fly. Almost, I was so kind of in the flow too that a lot of them didn't even make it to my consciousness. I'd just be kind of reacting to what I was seeing, typing a bunch of SQL here, looking at the results. So what you what you described is basically a, a series of sequential actions and decision-making. You know, is GPT-4 good at that? Not really. That's why we had like this giant kind of Hullabaloo um, in maybe Q1, Q2 this year about agents, right? Like, mm. remember, remember like baby AGI? I don't know if, I don't know if anyone, you know, remembers that. It was like, it was like, you know, people were like, oh, we can make agents out of the large language models. And it just turned out that agents couldn't really come up with these steps um, mm. very intelligently. So it was just like that divergence divergent thinking, just kind of like making up a bunch of, you know, steps that weren't necessarily rational or, or it better than just like the one-off kind of like response. So I think, you know, being able to, I, I do think that's why Q star is interesting actually. Mm. Um, it's, and it's not new. It's like Q star is, you know, it's a form of reinforcement learning. Um, you know, I, I kind of had a feeling that reinforcement learning would be really really important to solving this problem. So we've had, you know, reinforcement learning engineers on our team for a long time now. Um, 
and that's the reason is that's that's the type of machine learning, not just LLMs, that's you know that's needed to to solve a series of sequential actions. It's interesting too because the iterative process that you're that we're talking about here does seem to work with these large language language models as long as you have a human in the loop. Like when you see people use uh, GPT-4 successfully for coding, it's because they ask for coding output, then they test it, then they go back and say, here's the error I got. And then they go through this, through this iteration process. Same thing with SQL, like you'll get some columns that are incorrectly named in the output. You go back and say, well, this correct it and then ask for an iteration. And somehow, I guess, Maybe that is the near future, is using these tools in inter interaction with humans and teaching the tools to interact with humans better and teaching the humans to interact with the tools better. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, no, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think we're I think we have a long way to go. Like right now, um, you know, people, you know, even in Seek's interface, like we have a SQL copilot. It's it's pretty cool. You can, you know, tell tell it what you want, you know. We, we even have an editor um, and you can kind of go back and forth in the editor, you know, in real time to improve your code. Um, but I just know that's just the beginning because it's just mm -hmm. like, you know, a co-pilot, co-pilots today, I think are going to seem pretty primitive in the future. I think the yeah. real kind of, you know, what I believe will hopefully happen is software will kind of evolve to kind of fit more around AI and be almost like more AI native. Whereas mm -hmm. right now, um, you know, like every company has like company name magic, you know, you just kind of like plop, plop some AI in with a little like sparkle emoji. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like that, that to me is probably just the beginning. I think in the yeah. future, it'll be a lot more embedded to actually really helping people in this case, have a very pleasant experience debugging SQL for example, or not need to debug it at all. You know, it'll also get better at self debugging too. So that's really interesting. Um, let me see here. Krishna asks, can AI replace data visualization tools in the near future? I wouldn't say AI is going to replace I, I think it's more data visualization tools and ai will kind of merge because um I, like just thinking about like what is a data visualization tool um it, it's not a hundred like i don't think a hundred percent ai would be like you need software engineering plus ai you know a model can only take you so far um data visualization like you need to, you might have a preference of like, you want a, a bar chart versus a stacked bar chart versus an area chart. Um, you can ask an AI to help you build that. Um, or, you know, you instead of typing out all those words, honestly, some people may prefer to just select from a dropdown because maybe that's actually less work for them than like typing all that out to an AI. You know, so I do think that these tools will kind of more be seamlessly kind of integrated, not necessarily replacing. Well, the, the uh, title of the talk is um, automating analytics. Well, will analytics be completely automated and will analysts find something else to do at some point in the future? So, I mean, I think my answer to that is I think the type of analytics that I didn't want to do when I was a data scientist, like that's the whole reason I set out to start Seek. Cause I, when I first saw large language models write SQL, at least it really hit me like, okay, you know, an AI, an AI could do this. Like going back to the human Siri example, just, yeah. I was like, I feel like the human Siri, you know, that kind of tells me an AI could do this. So, I mean, if you're doing work that feels really repetitive, like AI probably is just going to do that. <laughs> right. But I don't think that's a bad thing because hopefully, you know, there's a lot of people that can relate to my experience. Like I know in data science, a lot of people come from a master's degree in data science or they come from STEM and they're curious people and they want to be doing research. I don't think AI is going to replace that kind of research because that's really, that's what it's not good at. It's not good at reasoning through series of sequential steps. That's something that researchers are really good at doing. 
So I think that's the kind of work that's going to be last to get automated. All that other stuff, though, about question answering, you know, helping non-technical people build visualizations. I mean, like a lot of that stuff that even Seek does, you know, today, like this stuff is already and, and you know, like SQL co-pilots. These are things that exist today. Um, so that's kind of the bottom of the, the hierarchy. Mm. Um, so, uh, so long story short, um, no, I don't think data analysts are, are going to get replaced. I don't think data scientists, I think they're going to be happier. Hopefully that's my goal. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. And to me, it's like the increasingly the analysts will be able to focus on asking the right questions and having a statistical understanding, yeah. hopefully of the output and the questions they're asking. Well, it's what we talked about in the book, Matt, the, we call this kind of the live data stack too, where it was uh, the, the rise of real time and so forth means a feedback loop um, to an application and answer and question. Um, like if you have what or when type questions, more descriptive type questions, those will be automated. I, which is typically a lot of the questions that an analyst gets asked, like, oh, tell me how many widgets we sold. And it's like, that should be automated. That's a, it's a question that just you yeah. shouldn't be asking me. Um, but the how or why type questions, the causal, Type questions, I don't see large language models really solving those. And I think that's to, to all your points where you know, we're going to add value as an analyst. I mean, that's, that's what you should be doing, hopefully. But I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think it's a really good question. Um, it's something I thought about too, is why do the non-technical people, like why are they the only ones that should be using, um, you know, automated analytics platforms uh, like Seek, like why should they be the only ones that enjoy this? You know, they have so certain questions for their job, um, but the data analysts and the data scientists also, I, I totally agree. They're going to have their own questions um, and their questions are probably going to be different types of questions that are probably more complex. You know, like, Data doesn't have to just be to answer simple questions. You can also have, if you know a lot about the data, you can leverage that. And the AI can also help you with those more kind of very detailed questions too. Yep. Let's get to a couple of questions here and we'll probably wrap up. Um, come back to a question that Jason asked you earlier. Um, this is kind of a follow-up to a more of a long question he asked, but I'll ask a short one. Um, if the accuracy of Seek is 99.9%, .9 can uh, quote industry, whether that's a financial or pharmaceutical sector, um, can they realistically tolerate a 0.1% uh, error rate? Yeah, I mean, it depends. Um, but we have seen cases, especially, yeah, these kind of sectors or other, you know, we work with other kind of healthcare companies that have similar sensitivity. Um, again, that's why sometimes you need that human in the loop. Yeah. You know, you can't just have AI running wild if it's 99.9%. Um, if you have that human in the loop, you just can't get any better than that. So um, that's kind of, that's an example of what, an example of what I would call AI safety actually. Mm. And it's, it's a good example of customers sometimes demand that AI safety. And what's cool, I think actually about our customers is, you know, it's, it's not fighting against what we're trying to build. We kind of have to build it because what the customers want. Let's get to another question here. Actually from the same guy. Um, how do you compare contrast with ThoughtSpot? Yeah, so ThoughtSpot is a BI tool. Um, I think that they're, they're self-serve analytics. Um, I think it's what we were talking about earlier. Um, and the dream of self-serve analytics is pretty similar, I'd say, to the dream of Seek. It's, right. you know, be able to let anybody ask questions and get answers right away. I think just the difference is Seek is only two years old. I mean, that makes us kind of a dinosaur in the generative AI world. But we are AI native. You know, we're trying to achieve that sort of blend of software engineering and AI kind of fused together. Um, ThoughtSpot you know, has been around for a longer time. I think it's just a different type of self-serve tool. Yep. Yeah, good product. We had them on our show. We're friends with them, so. Um, 
Matt, you've been unusually quiet because your audio is probably broken. <laughs> it's fixed now. I found the problem anyway. Oh, I'll, I'll know for future reference. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, this was a great conversation. I mean, one other question, Sarah, in the last couple minutes here. I mean, to Joe's point, using AI type techniques on and machine learning techniques on structured data is really, really hard. And I think that's generally known amongst people who work in these areas. So I'm imagining that in that experience you talked about of being the human Siri for data, there was something specific that told you, you know what, I can do this, I can attack this problem. Like what, what factors led to you saying, all right, this is something that I can solve where I have something to bring to the table. Sure. Sorry, that's <laughs> yeah, a, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, mean I, I think there's an answer there, That's, but I'm curious. Yeah, great question, because, you know, it's, yeah, it's a really hard problem. So I, if I didn't make that clear already. Um, so what made me be like, out of all the people out there, you know, we've got like these geniuses uh, at Google, like why, why me? Um, I think I just was like, this is just something I have to do. I mean, yep. I, I, I just, I was just like, I can't keep living this way. I can't keep being the human Siri. Like I had no other choice, basically. That's kind of how I felt. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. I mean, I think often it does come down to sense of mission, kind of like you were talking about earlier. Like you just keep working on the problem and you make this incremental progress. And then eventually you get to something that actually does interesting things. I mean, in some sense, we're all seeing that the gee whiz, you know, exciting outputs of neural nets these days and deep learning but it took so long to get here. And maybe that journey was similar because we started this journey, what, back in the 1960s or something. And it took us into the 2000s to have the big breakthroughs in like image recognition and such. And so ultimately maybe that's the approach. No, that's a great answer. I mean, if you could work on the problem long enough, then yeah. Yeah, and I was just like, I'm just gonna keep going. Um, so, you know, it's just more like, what else am I gonna do? I'm just gonna keep going and see how far I can get, so. <laughs> I want to automate my job. <laughs> so. Wow. That's a lot of loathing you had for uh, what <laughs> yeah. you're doing then. So It's Good almost like you. a labor movement. It's like I'm going on strike <laughs> against having to do this kind of work, and I'm going to make a tool that will do it for the humans so they can think about other things. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Well, it's like the, it's like the um, there's a Morgan Housel's new book. He's talking about the person who invented the shovel. And you could have just been that person, or you could just be the person who used to dig holes by hand, right? But why take the time to, to develop a shovel, right? That seems like a stupid thing to do. You're not incentivized to do it. Nobody's forcing you to do this. In fact, it makes yeah. everyone else look really bad if you do it this way, right? But and who knows? A shovel may not work. That might have been a really stupid idea to do, but turns out sometimes you make a tool that is really useful to people that solves your own problem. So, so hopefully this, <laughs> hopefully this is, um, you know, your, your vision was seek and the outcome of it. I'm, I'm excited for you. It's cool. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, it makes me, it's something that makes me feel, you know, always reassured when um, just as the industry changes, I'm, I'm just, the first thing I ask myself is, would this have really helped me when I was a data scientist? Right. <laughs> so, you know, it is kind of nice to just, I try to put myself in the shoes of who I used to be as a data scientist at all times, because mm. it really helps me also filter out the BS like, yeah. is, this, is this real? You know, would this really have helped me? So it, it also helps with our product too. You know, I'm just like, would this really have helped me? So, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, for people who want to learn more about you and Seek, how can they do that? Uh, yeah, so our website is just seek, S-E-E-K dot A-I. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Sarah R. Naji. Um, yeah, please give me a follow. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Um, any events you're going to be at or Matt or anyone? Nothing. Anything to much. announce? Yeah. I guess there's an audio book of our book now. We didn't even know about this, but it came out. So <laughs> if you want to go get that, uh, I guess you can get it on Audible or O'Reilly. Um, Fundamentals of Data Engineering audio version. Um, what else? I'll be at reInvent this week. Uh, so if you want to come hang out, get some beers or a meal, whatever. It's a lot of food though, I don't, don't get me a meal. Beers are good. Um, we hang out with me there. And um, what else? Next week, we got Tristan Handy, DBC, talking about things. I don't know, he's always fun to talk to. <laughs> so nice. he's got it. Yeah, 
Yeah, are there any low-key happy hours going on in New York this week or next week? Uh, I'm not I sure just got invited. That. I just saw one. I just saw an invite come in during this podcast. Um, wait, I can even. Yeah, announce the date if you can. That, yeah. Is it Ethan's? Um, yeah, I just saw it come in Wednesday, December 6th at Flannery's Bar in New York. Nice. Um, now I have to go. Okay. Um, Seek also has some stuff. Uh, if anyone's going to be at the AI Summit in New York at the Javits Center next week, uh, we're going to be oh, there. We have a couple of people at reInvent as well, probably wearing the Seek hat, so you can find them. Seek them out. Um, yeah, seek, seek them out. Hey. Seek and destroy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't destroy. Don't destroy them, though, please. Uh. <laughs> Sarah said it, not me. Um, so Flanners would be good. Yeah, you, you all should go uh, uh, meet up there since you're both uh, New York. So Yeah, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. Are yeah. you, uh, do you ever go to David Driven, Data Driven NYC, Sarah? I do, yeah. I think that's on Monday. So, okay, awesome. Yeah. yeah. Next uh, Monday. I yeah. wish I was in New York, but. Come visit, uh, Joe. Come visit. I might actually. I might come out next month. You should. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just let me know. Yeah, we'll do. Awesome. Well, you all have fun at your meetups and happy hours, and I'll just be down in Vegas uh, doing that mess. So, anyway, have a good week, everybody. We'll see you back next Monday. And yeah, have a good one. Take care. Great. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was awesome.